0: Hello everyone, and welcome to episode 2 of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast. Today we are going to be discussing the Islamic Revolutionary State of Afghanistan, which is just one of the many short-lived states that has come out of Afghanistan in recent history. So let's set the stage. The year was 1973, and Afghanistan was a kingdom ruled by King Mohammad Zahir Shah. That is until the king's cousin Daoud Khan overthrew the government with an armed insurrection backed by the People's Democratic Party of Afghanistan, otherwise known as the PDPA. Following his coup's success, Daoud ruled the new Republic of Afghanistan as a Soviet backed one party state for five years. Unfortunately, during Daoud's rule, the PDPA began to split an infight, eventually forming two factions, known as the Kalk faction and the Parcham faction. There were massive differences between the two factions, but to simplify it down to a digestible level, the Parcham faction mainly aligned with urban people, while the Kalk faction aligned with those in the countryside. Of course, each faction claimed to be the true PDPA, which led to a massive breakdown of relations between the two. This all culminated on April 17, 1978, when the leader of the Parcham faction, Mir Akbar Khyber, was assassinated outside of his home. Daoud blamed the killing on Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, who was an Islamist militant operating within the country at the time. However, most people in the PDPA believed that Daoud was to blame, and that he was eliminating powerful people so as to secure his own reign. Panic spread like wildfire among the PDPA higher-ups for fears that Daoud would come after them next, and protests broke out throughout the country. After successfully putting down the protests, Daoud had leaders of both PDPA factions arrested, which I'm sure did nothing to quell their suspicions. One of the leaders of the Kalk faction, by the name of Hafizullah Amin, decided that house arrest did not agree with him, and he openly called for an overthrow of Daoud's government. Kalk-aligned military officers immediately began to mobilize in accordance with this order, even though Amin did not have legal authority over them. Therefore, it's pretty clear that it wasn't just the higher-ups in the PDPA that were chafing under Daoud's rule. As military leaders within Daoud's government caught on to this uprising, they urged him to bring tanks to the ARG to defend the palace. The ARG is like the Afghan equivalent to the White House. And this brings us to April 27th, 1978, when we get the most dramatic movie moment of this whole story. On that day, the tank commander at the ARG revealed his Kalk-aligned beliefs by turning all of the tanks on the palace and trapping Daoud inside. By midday, part of that tank column was moving freely throughout Kabul, met only with resistance from Daoud's police force. As I'm sure you can imagine, the tanks didn't have too much of a problem dealing with the police, and so the coup went on more or less unhindered. With all but the palace now secured, the rebels followed up by launching rockets at the ARG via the Air Force in order to flush Daoud out of hiding. By late evening on April 27th, the rebels seemed to have successfully captured Radio Afghanistan, which was meant to be government-owned and operated by Daoud, because they used this station to announce that they were overthrowing Daoud in a communist revolution. You know, just in case that wasn't clear by the tanks and the rockets. On early morning the next day, in a final dramatic movie moment, Daoud and his brother Naim charged out of the front gates of the palace, pistols in hand, but were immediately gunned down. The rebels followed up on this success by openly executing Daoud's ministers and vice president. On 7pm that day, Kalk rebels used Radio Afghanistan to announce, and I quote, For the first time in the history of Afghanistan, the last remnants of monarchy, tyranny, despotism, and power of the dynasty of the tyrant Nadir Khan has ended, and all powers of the state are in the hands of the people of Afghanistan. Unquote. Keep in mind that even though Daoud was not a monarch of Afghanistan, he was still part of Nadir Khan's dynasty, as he was the cousin of the last reigning king. And so, the Republic of Afghanistan was now the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan. It was an unstable one-party communist state, but this is still not the country that we are going to be talking about today. In response to the fall of Daoud's Republic and the chaos that followed, a Muslim teacher in Nuristan, which is a province in the northeast of the country, decided to establish his own nation. Muhammad Afzal thus founded the Islamic Revolutionary State of Afghanistan in the Bashkal Valley of Nuristan province. Now, we're going to take a moment to get to know Mr. Afzal a little bit, because he is the most interesting part of this entire story, if you ask me. Afzal was a Malawi, which is an Islamic title, which means scholar. He achieved this rank by being educated in both Pakistan and India. Upon completing his education, he returned to his native village of Badmukh to do some teaching of his own but it doesn't seem like Afzal was just a standard high school teacher. Although sources on this individual are scarce, there are whispers that he had connections to Lashkar-e-Taiba, which was a militant group operating in Pakistan. Lashkar-e-Taiba had an aggressive anti-Indian stance, so if Afzal was associated with them, there is a chance that he too was more of a militant than the average teacher may be. And his association with Lashkar-e-Taiba would be a bit paradoxical. It would not be entirely surprising if Afzal was exposed to Lashkar-e-Taiba as he was educated in Pakistan. But he did then go on to be educated in India as well. So any anti-Indian sentiments that he may have harbored would have been in a strange place at that time of his life. Now we're going to get into a bit of conjecture on my part. If you ask me, Afzal almost certainly was militant in some way because he felt confident enough to break away from the Democratic Republic of Afghanistan and typically seceding from communist states is not good for one's health. So there must have been something telling him that this was going to be an okay thing to do. Of course, this is all alleged. I wouldn't want to offend Mr. Afzal or any Lashkar-e-Taiba members somehow listening to this podcast. But I think this theory does have a leg to stand on. You see, one of the most impressive things that the Islamic Revolutionary State of Afghanistan managed to do was establish a consulate in both Pakistan and Saudi Arabia. The ties between Pakistan and Lashkar-e-Taiba are obvious, but it is also worth mentioning that Saudi Arabia allegedly financed the activities of the organization historically. Since foreign relations and recognition are some of the hardest things for breakaway states to secure, I wouldn't be surprised if Afzal used some less than shady connections to do so. And that's kind of all I've got for Mr. Afzal, so let's talk about the revolutionary state itself. The Islamic revolutionary state of Afghanistan was tiny, I mean real small. It existed exclusively in the northern part of the Bashkal River Valley, which means it could not have been more than a few square miles at most. And I think its location was just about the only thing keeping this country together for any amount of time whatsoever. The Bashkal River Valley is located in Nuristan Province, which borders Pakistan. And I think that it's pretty safe to say that access to their Pakistani allies was a vital component of the minor success of the Islamic Revolutionary State of Afghanistan. And unfortunately for us, that's pretty much all the information we have on this little country. You may have noticed that I haven't made mention of any dates since the fall of Daoud's Republic, and that's simply because we just don't have any. In fact, it's entirely likely that the Islamic Revolutionary State of Afghanistan existed for longer than just one year, but since it was so small and we have so little information about it, I'm going to count it as a one-year nation. So, why was it forgotten? I think you could take the easy choice and say, well, we just don't have any sources about it, so how could we remember it? But there's definitely more to it than that. The revolutionary state managed to do something exceptional for a breakaway state, which was secure consulates in not one but two foreign countries. As I said before, international recognition is just about the hardest thing to come by for breakaway states, and since the revolutionary state managed to achieve this not once but twice, means that it can't just be discounted as, oh, well, no one knew about it. Really, I think the reason that the revolutionary state has been forgotten by the general public is because it's located within Afghanistan. I think that people as a whole have a pretty clear picture of what they think Afghanistan is like in their head, and so diplomatic nuances definitely get lost in all of that. Which is unfortunate, because the revolutionary state achieved something exceptional, and it would be a shame if that were lost to history. And there you have it, episode two of the History of Forgotten Lands podcast wrapped up. Thank you all for listening, and I hope to see you again next week when we stay in Afghanistan and discuss the Islamic Emirate of Kunar.